When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hey, I am excited to introduce to you James Garrett Jr. He is a business owner, architect of Formula. It's his business name. He's a community leader, five-generation St. Paul resident. Uh, he's the father of two young boys. He's been in a lot of talks over the weekend about what needs to happen, and uh, I'm excited to welcome you to the show. Hi, James. Hey, thank you, Alexis. Hey, I, can you tell us why this moment is so important? You know, I think for me, this moment is is really important because it it represents a possible inflection point um, between the trajectory that we as a society and as a community here in the Twin Cities and nationally um, have been on. And I think it provides an opportunity for us to change that trajectory and change that direction. Sometimes it it takes um, these tragic events to raise people's awareness of things that are going on on a daily basis and have gone on um, for dozens of years, decades, centuries, um, that people aren't always aware of or cognizant of on a daily basis. Uh, For me, for my family, for my community, um, these are things that we have to think about and that we have to deal with every day of our lives, that we have to educate our children about um, it's something that we don't have the luxury or the privilege to be able to say, oh, it's an inconvenient time. Um, I had a, I had a friend, uh, a good time, a long time friend last night reach out to me and say that, you know, he wants to help and he wants to do this and that and the other thing. And could I give him some ideas of ways he could get involved? And so, you know, I, I quickly, you know, I was, trying to multitask and I gave him two or three things and said, you know, Hey, and you know, he hit me back and said, Oh, well right now isn't really a good time. I've got this going on. I've got that going on and some other stuff going on personally with my family or whatever. No. What is the right time? It's always an inconvenient time for, Mm -hmm. for us, but we don't have the luxury of saying, well, we'll address this existential threat at a time that is appropriate for us. So, you know, I told him, I said, Hey, there'll be plenty of work to get done when you're ready to do the work. But, I'm on my way out here now to, you know, to feed people and to try to fix stuff and to try to, you know, get in where I fit in in terms of making making an impact. But when you're whenever you're ready, whenever it's convenient, feel free. James, how do we make sure? Obviously, we all want justice uh, for George Floyd's family. We want 
we want the, 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 the cops involved to be taken in and charged. But how do we make sure that w- that is a catalyst for substantial change? How do we make sure that once justice is found in, in, in the George Floyd case, that it doesn't just vanish off Twitter and, and, and the headlines? How do we make sure that this serves as a catalyst for much-needed, bottom-to-top, tip-to-tail change? You know, I think that's a great question. Um, there's a lot of people sort of behind the scenes that are self-organizing around some of these issues of equity and justice. Um, I think there's going to be a massive sort of restructuring of society, and there's got to be uh, a massive uh, redistribution of resources to communities that have been sort of left out um, for long periods of time. And I don't know, I honestly don't know if society is ready to do that yet. Um, I know there's a lot of people, but are those people that are actually, you know, having their, their fingers on the levers of power, are they at that point? Are they at that place? And, um, you know, there's also a lot of pushback every time, you know, we make progress. There's always a lot of backlash and a lot of pushback. You know, I'm thinking about, you know, in particular, the eight years that we had with President Obama um, and the progress that was made economically, the progress that was made um, in a lot of ways in this society. And then the pushback from that has been horrific. And, you know, the current occupants of the White House and that whole movement, uh, sort of fanatical sort of movement that says that he can do anything, you know, that he wants without any repercussion. That whole thing, you know, is a reaction to the progress that was made. Mm -hmm. And so in this country, we always seem to regress after we move forward. And so, you know, hopefully this time we can move forward beyond that and begin to build bridges with people that are looking to, to make an impact and to make a difference and find solutions without, than regressing backwards in some really crazy situation again. So, I mean, it's I'm I'm skeptical whether we're going to have justice. First of all, I mean, I have to be honest about that. We've seen time and time again um, with Jamar Clark, um, with Philando Castile. Um, we've seen it over and over again, countless times here locally and nationally that there usually isn't justice. Right. That that's something yes. that it's optimistic at best mm-hmm. for that out there and, and use that as the premise um, for a, taking a position moving forward. Um, but I think we really have to focus on finding justice right now and keep that focus because it is not uh, in any way guaranteed. And if, you know, past precedent is um, any guide towards, you know, future outcome. We're in for a long, a long period of time here and a really, really dark period of time. Uh, Kenny. Uh, James, I'm buddies with uh, Reverend Tim, who uh, lives over uh, on the north side here in Minneapolis, works at a Baptist church up there. He's a community leader, a strong voice, but is totally ignored from both political parties in the city and uh, has has recently come to the attention of uh, the Capitol. And I've been talking with him for a year, year and a half now, and uh, I share everything you say about justice, but 
I feel like as a, a white dude on the south side, other than protesting, there's nothing I can do. But I, I keep what what Reverend Tim uh, in his voice, uh, his words keep echoing in my mind is giving the black community hope. And, and number one and most important is through justice. But also Tim likes to talk about how he wants to give the young men and women of his community hope by giving getting them education and getting them good call a uh, good blue collar jobs and I, I can only i can only refer to my son who's 20 now he went to a one year of trade school and he's now working a blue collar uh, construction job and james he is making serious coin uh, and he's banking it and it's amazing to see and there's so many kids in these low income areas that all they need is hope they need to get uh, they need to be given the opportunity to go to a trade school to get a good job and start making good money. Is there anything we can do to help that, to help that help uh, happen? Not only the justice hope, but the hope for a good, bright future. Is there anything we can do? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a ton of stuff that can be done. And, I mean, I guess I would like to sort of challenge the premise that a blue-collar job is necessarily... Um, the means to access um, sort of a hopeful, uh, bright, optimistic future. I mean, I think it starts with basic general respect, being able to be respected, um, all the microaggressions and things that we receive on a daily basis, regardless of what color our collar is, is completely unacceptable. It's infuriating, and it's something that, you know, we're not always in a position um, with the power dynamics to be able to sort of respond to it. And we sort of have to sort of allow it to sort of roll off our shoulders, you know, um, for periods of time. But that, that builds up and it, it makes you uh, negative towards and suspicious of anybody that's, that's offering to help. When Minnesota is like, it's, it's the place of, of microaggressions. It is literally the home, the capital of microaggressions against uh, black people and, and people of color. Um, the subtle innuendo, the um, assumptions that people aren't capable of doing even basic things that they're actually very good at, the right. not giving people chances because, oh, well, you know, we think you're smart, we think you're great, we think this, that, other thing. However, we just feel more comfortable going in this other direction with the people oh. that look just like us who've been continuing oh. to do this, and we're just going to keep the opportunity together. But we're going to say all these platitudes as if you're stupid and completely incapable of understanding the undertones of what all this means is that in defense of the system that's already in place, as much as we like you, as, as much work as we acknowledge that you've done, as intelligent as you are, as great as your resume and portfolio is, we're going to, you're still number two because we're just going to go with this mediocre person who's done half as much as you has not put in, you know, the amount of work that you've put in, is not as, pre- as prepared and as focused as you, but we just feel more comfortable working with this person. That, that is the underlying reason why we have the disparities in our communities yeah. here. So yeah. although I think blue-collar jobs are great, I think white-collar gr- jobs are great as well. And what I think is even greater is allowing each kid, you know, to have that opportunity to reach whatever level that career that they choose and who knows one of these kids and one of these underserved communities may be the one to cure cancer right you know maybe the person to take us to mars 
right? But we'll never know because we're already saying that we're limiting them at having a blue-collar job, you know, is like the height of whatever your potential is. And I right. don't and necessarily the reason... um, subscribe to that. I absolutely see your point, and the reason I brought it up, it's the frame of reference I have from my kid who didn't want to go to a four-year college, didn't want to, wasn't interested in college, wasn't interested in a white-collar job, and didn't want to pay college off for the rest of his life. You know what I mean? Uh, and and that's my frame of reference. Well, yeah, no, that, that makes perfect sense. I, yeah. mean, I have people in, in my family that are like that and friends in my community that, that are like that, and... uh you know, there are wonderful contributions that everyone can make if they're allowed to be yep. become fully actualized Amen. human yep. beings. Mm-hmm. And when you care about people, when you show love to people, when you treat them with respect and dignity and, uh, and show that you're generally interested in their well-being and helping them reach that full potential, whatever that is, whatever they're interested in, whether they're interested in, you know, swinging a hammer and building, you know, building skyscrapers, or whether they're interested in microbiology and, you know, uh, mm-hmm. you know, rocket science. Those are things that should all be supported, and those dreams should all be within reach for everybody. You know, it, 100%. It, it, there was a situation, um, you know, just a little background about me you know my uh, family goes way back in in this community in st paul back into the late 1800s hey james can um, i james can i interrupt yeah. you real quick is there any way could sure. you hang can on you could you stay for one more segment of course we yeah we got to take i did not mean to interrupt you but i i want you i don't want to cut you short with your with your words so we're going to take a small a break and we'll be back with more right after this our special guest james garrett jr we continue our conversation with him. Garrett, we just have, sadly, we could talk to you all day. We just have a few more minutes. You began, before I had to break for commercial, telling a little bit about your background. Could you pick it up from there, my friend? Mm-hmm. Certainly, certainly. Um, you know, I was just going to mention that, you know, I'm a fifth-generation um, member of the community here in, in St. Paul. My great-great-grandmother, um, as we understand, it was the first uh, African-American homeowner on Rondo, Rondo Avenue in wow. St. Paul back in the around the turn of the century. And uh, my grandfather um, was a St. Paul police officer for 42 years, James Griffin. Um, Griffin Stadium um, at St. Paul Central High School is named after him, as well as the St. Paul Police Headquarters is named the James S. Griffin Building down on Grove Street. Um, so my family has been a stalwart member of the community um, for many, many generations here in St. Paul. And my grandfather's godfather, um, Clarence Cap Whittington happened to be the first black municipal architect in the United States and was a city architect for decades here in St. Paul and built many of the, the St. Paul public landmarks uh, that we recognize, the Highland Water Tower, um, um, my grade school, uh, my mom's high school, Washington High School, um, dozens of buildings, um, many that are on historical register. Um, and so when I was a little kid, I decided I wanted to be an architect. That was what was my passion. That was something that was sort of part of my family legacy. And when I got to, to high school, Central High School, you know, I was told that I couldn't take the architecture class because the architecture class was reserved for a certain group of older students that, you know, they looked all white to me, you know, in a very mm-hmm. diverse high school. There were no students of color taking the architecture class. I wanted to take that class. 
they told me that, oh, yeah, you're not really able to take the class because there's all these requirements, whatever. So I brought my parents up to school to find out, you know, what, what the hell's going on and why can't my son register for this class? So they said, oh, well, you know, we just think it's more likely that, um, you know, he, he needs to take machine part drafting because, you know, we just feel like it's more likely that he would be a draftsman or something someday. And so we want to make sure that he's prepared, wow. prepared oh, for that. You know, they, they didn't necessarily think that architecture was something that, you know, I was maybe capable of doing at the time, right? Even though, you know, my great uncle was, yeah. you know, had been the city architect, you know, from the 1920s to the 1950s. Wow. And, you know, so whatever. So the compromise, the Minnesota Nice compromise is that, okay, if I can draw, you know, do 50 machine part sort of projects where you draw them, you draft them, you do perspectival drawings of them, like the whole thing, and then you hand them in, they get corrected, you redraw them, you get them perfect, and then you hand them in, you, you advance on to the next one. And if I got to like 50, I think they said, then I could take the architecture class. So I was like, okay, fine, 50, whatever. After about a year, I realized that I'd only gotten to, I think, 16 or something like that. I finished like 16 in that year. And I realized, I started doing the math and I started realizing I'm going to graduate before I ever get to 50. There's no way that I'm going to get to 50. And I feel like they knew that too, right? So they set the bar somewhere, and that's the Minnesota nice compromise. They won't just tell you no. They'll say, okay, well, this is a compromise. If you do this, then you can qualify for that. But they set the bar at a place that it's completely so unattainable, high. and you waste yeah. all this time and energy trying to get there, and then you realize they could have just saved time and just said, you know, absolutely no. Um, and so what I found is in my life, um, that's been typical, you know, that has been a typical thing. You know, when I reached university, um, when I was in graduate school, the bar has always moved. There's always people in positions of authority with levers on the fingers of, um, on uh, fingers on the lever of power that can move the goalposts for you and make it virtually impossible for you to achieve your goal. And that's... Don't do it in, in the old school way where they just, you know call you a racial epithet and say no but it's this this whole subtle movement of the goalpost and making it seem like it's an illusion james that we sadly we're up against good. we're up against a hard break james i'm so sorry yeah, we, we gotta yeah. take a break thank, thank you james. so much we were up against the clock there and uh the computer you guys have heard us talk about this we have to be quiet no regardless yeah the computer just <laughs> fires so well, I apologize uh, to our uh, fabulous guest, James. And Lex, I hope you will extend our apologies. It was just. Oh, uh, yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yes, James Garrett Jr. Uh, we'll put a link up on our show page too. check him out. Check out his architecture firm. And um, he is a leader uh, and has been in St. Paul for five generations. I mean, sure, the stories there. I mean, we could talk to him forever. How did you just like Pierre? <laughs> may I ask? Oh, yeah. Sure. May I ask? How did you meet? How did you meet? Okay. James? This is a funny, funny story. So when Angel moved here, he worked at the Olive Garden in Roseville. Yeah, I remember. Yes, and uh, he worked there for like five years. I mean, he had multiple jobs at the same time, but uh, when he moved here, this was 2005. And he was actually his, Garrett's family's server at Olive Garden. And he became friends uh, with the entire family. And they invited Angel to... Uh, after this one interaction, I mean, this is the power of Angel, right? <laughs> yeah. He was like, we're going to um, like a, re a wedding reception of this awesome guy, James and Paola, and just come. And I was like, all right, 
let's go. Yeah. And he and, and um, he lives in St. Paul. And so uh, we went to the party and uh, it turns out we have a lot of mutual friends. But that's how that started was on Hill was his server <laughs> at Olive Garden. And then uh, we've just been friends since. And then, like I said, which we didn't even get to ask him about Rocco, but um, Rocco went our, our Rocco here at my talk he uh, went to high school with him so when he was like you know Gary, you know james wait what so i mean it really is a small world but that's how that happened isn't that crazy that, who knew and then when we went to new york you know after my talk won a gracie uh, his sister um uh, well she's worked at different places but she is a a high level t- a news producer like she is awesome and yeah. um we met for lunch uh, while we were there and so he just comes he is just awesome and his family is fantastic and have deep roots here in st paul or in the twin cities and as you can hear very passionate about you know what's going on and you know and and ways to help because it's very important to have voices for of all of us no matter what color you are i am so glad that he told the story of um his experience in school and wanting to go to yeah. those architecture yeah. classes yeah. because yeah. i read that on his bio on his website and yes. i thought i'm gonna ask him if because all it says is even in high school um he was discouraged by a teacher telling him that he probably should take a different path and i thought i wonder if that path if the teacher said that because yep. he you know was was a person of he color. Sounds to me That's like, why. like he was the cl- he he was obviously the class brainiac. He's brilliant. And, and, yeah, and, and even though he's the class brainiac, he was still treated that way. What the hell? And also, and, and then told what? he was given a task to do something that they knew he wouldn't be yeah. able to finish. And to hear that, those are the kind of things that we need to hear. Yeah. Yeah. As people yeah. who don't experience this, yes. it's yes. uncomfortable, and you you feel like we don't even know the depth. Uh, we really don't, no. and that's why no. it's so important to have people like James on the show today. Absolutely, because it's, again, I, I was reading something going in, and it just talked about why it's so hard sometimes for folks that look like us to wrap our brain around racism, and one of the main reasons is is because folks think it's it's a conscious act. Well, I don't I don't say this word and I don't I'm not racist. Well, okay, that's great. I mean that's good. But racism is also a system, a system that's been in place for years that works in favor of us and against people of color. Um and but that's that's hard to kind of wrap your brain around. Um, and it's uncomfortable, especially because when you're it's probably a, a good person. You're well, thinking, yes, I, I do good. Yes. And it doesn't take away for their excellence doesn't take away from your excellence. If, oh, if, if oh, wait, say that again, Jason. Their excellence doesn't take away from our excellence. Oh, and if yeah. they win, we all win. I mean, yes. you know what I mean? I think Paul Wellstone said that quote. Uh, if we win, they win. They win. I'm, uh, but there's a great quote from Paul Wellstone, the late Paul Wellstone. But, but it's true. I, I, it's fear. It's fear of looking at a system. Look at the history. Well, yeah. Of riots, of race relations, of police brutality. I mean, you're right. This is uncomfortable, but we have to do it. We can't just post something on social media and go, "I've done my work." Yeah. No. Someone said, and and again, it's also taking, and this is a challenge for me, um, admittedly, 
It's also looking at yourself. And I had a young lady say something to me on social media of like, I, I'm asking you to do more than the bare minimum because I had posted something. And she was referring to just a social media post. And, and admittedly, my first instinct was to get defensive. And I'm like, well, I'm doing, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about it on the show. And, and I thought, shut your mouth, Jason. Just listen. Listen to what she's saying. She's not saying it to be an ass. She's doing it to help you. We just have to be in a space where we're open to hear it. We're open yeah. to hearing a challenge to a system that has benefited us for a very long time. And that's hard. That's hard to do, but we have to do the hard work. They're, folks of color are doing uh, uh, <laughs> the work that they're doing, the work they're doing to stay alive. <laughs> yeah. We I mean, just, this is, this to, to breathe. Yes. So, I don't know. It's, uh, oh, I know, I do know. It's, it's, it's hard work that we all need to do. And we need to do it, and I'll say it again, we need to do it way beyond when the hashtags go away and the news media moves on to something else. It, See, that's the challenge. And even whenever yep. I, I would challenge everybody out there to stop being passive. If you see something that isn't right, somebody is being treated poorly, I'm not saying start causing violence, but I would question it. Stand there and question it and yeah. say, why are you treating this African-American person this way and don't leave until they give you an answer. Ask for their manager. If it's in a store, don't be passive, Mm -hmm. you know, because it's so easy to just go, Oh, what's going on there? And to walk away, stand there and listen and be an active participant in fighting racism instead of being passive. And if we, you know, I, I don't want this to sound woo woo, but if we all just start doing little things like that, maybe things will start to get better. Not that we're not that we are the, I used this phrase the other day. Don't get me wrong. I don't feel like I'm some type of a white knight that's going to come in and change everything. But as a human being who can be compassionate to other human beings on this planet, we have to take a more active role. Or this isn't going to change. We have to take inventory of, of our own power and what we can do with that power. You know, we really do. Um, yeah. I. Uh, it's it's it's. A lot of difficult conversations. A lot of difficult conversations that need to happen.